and welcome to our new series where we're looking at reflections from the life of Joseph. What an incredible young man Joseph was. You know, one of my girlfriends got married later on in life. This was some years back. She was in her early 40s. She was a really independent woman. She was really financially healthy and stable. She'd bought herself a couple of houses and um, and had done a really great job too. She ended up marrying this guy in her early 40s, a really lovely guy. And you know what? She couldn't have cared less about the fact that he had no money and no assets. In actual fact, if the truth be told, he even bought a little debt to that marriage. But she loved him and thought he was the right guy and she was totally unfazed about that. A few years later though, a few short years later, he began to experience some challenges from his past and he slowly became a really different person. Things got worse and worse and sooner rather than later, he ended up leaving. And then he sent my girlfriend divorce papers asking for half of everything that they had now owned. What do you do in situations like that? Forgiveness. It's a big word, right? It's so loaded and it sounds like we need to let someone who's done something wrong off the hook. But is that what forgiveness really is? I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase or the saying that, A lack of forgiveness is like drinking the poison and then waiting for the other person to die. You sort of have to get your head around it, but when you do, it makes perfect sense. If you've ever held onto offence and felt like you can't let it go, then you know very well that a lack of forgiveness can eat us up. It really is like a slow death. It's awful. It's nauseating. And often the person who's offended us couldn't care less. And you know what? They're going to bed and sleeping well every night. They're getting, they're getting on with life just fine. <laughs> you see, living with unforgiveness is really emotionally excruciating. It's a really taxing place to be because unforgiveness holds us hostage. So if forgiveness can free us from the ugly, nauseating and consuming feelings that come with hate, bitterness, resentment, um, you know, an obsession with constantly fantasizing about getting even, then why do we find it so hard to forgive if, if the benefits are there and they're good for our mental health? Why is it more compelling to hold on to our, onto wrongs that others have done against us rather than forgive? I've got some thoughts (laughs) around this and I wonder whether you might resonate with them. But you see, sometimes we don't want to forgive because we value justice and everything within us says, that's not fair. That's not okay. They should not get away with that and they need to pay for their wrongs or at the very least, hey, like be exposed for them, right? (laughs) That could be one reason. But we also struggle to forgive because it seems like forgiving, like it's, it just really feels like it just lets this other person off the hook and gives them permission to do it again. But I also think that maybe sometimes we struggle to forgive because we think it equates to weakness or maybe because we've got this subconscious definition of forgiveness that seems to think that Forgiveness means restoration and it means, you know, pretending like nothing ever happened and letting that person back into your life, back into your inner circle and giving them the same rights as before. You see, 
these are all valid human thoughts around this subject. And we all may think these from time to time. But the question is, how do we rise above those thoughts? Are they true anyway? But how do we rise above them and how do we step into forgiveness? And you are going to love the story of Joseph in the Bible because it gives us the power of forgiveness in a crazy way. It gives it to us. So let's picture the story from Genesis 42. It says there was a famine and it hit the people and they were starving. Now, remember that Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's dream some time ago and he'd essentially forewarned the Egyptians to prepare for lean years. Yeah. And you see, that's why they prepared and that's why Egypt was the only country that had food. What a prophetic dream that was. Now, back in um, Canaan, where uh, Jacob and uh, Joseph's dad and his brothers were, they weren't doing too well. And Joseph had, Jacob had heard that there was grain in Egypt. So he told his sons to go and buy some so that they wouldn't die of starvation. So he ended up sending all the boys off to Egypt, all but his youngest son, Benjamin. Now, the brothers, as they headed off, would never in their wildest dreams have imagined that their brother Joseph, that, had, that they had sold into slavery all those years back, was now, what? Prime Minister of Egypt. <laughs> Crazy to think. Meanwhile, Joseph, back in the palace, his main activity was to ensure that people were being fed and that food was in storage and it was being distributed outside of Egypt. Joseph had become of insane influence and authority. He was pretty much the top guy who controlled the world's food supply. Think about that. His brothers were heading out to see him. Are you feeling this moment? You see, if he chose to say no to them for food they would literally have died of starvation. Joseph had that much power. This was like a classic who has the last laugh moment. This essentially was Joseph's opportunity to get back of them, we would get back at them, we would think. Joseph would have recalled his dream of his brother's sheaves from back at the age of 17, his sheaves of wheat bowing before his sheaf. And the sun, the moon and the stars bowing down to him. How tempting would it have been in that moment for him to reveal himself and go, hey boys, told you so, remember me? Remember those dreams? But what did Joseph do? What did he do? How did he respond in this crazy moment where he could have gotten everything paid back? In a nutshell, he forgave them. In fact, it would be said, fair to say that he actually forgave them long before this moment. Chuck Swindoll, in his book about Joseph, actually tells us that nowhere in Scripture do we read that Joseph whinged about his brothers or contemplated getting back at them. And nowhere did he have a victim's mentality. That is insane. That is so insane. So I think that you and I can learn a few things from Joseph about how we can forgive those who wrong us. You see, Joseph teaches us that forgiveness is three things. He teaches us that forgiveness is God-centered. He also teaches us that forgiveness is decision-centered. 
And thirdly, that decision is boundary-centred. Now, let me unpack these one by one. Firstly, forgiveness is God-centred. In everything Joseph did, he was God-centred. He trusted God in his loneliness, in his betrayal, in his injustice, in his prison sentence, in his, you know, in his injustice. And he trusted God also for vindication. We know he was God-centered because throughout his story, we're told so many times that he attracted God's favor and that he was filled with the Spirit. Genesis 39.2 tells us that Joseph was a successful man and that all he did prospered. In fact, Genesis 39.5 tells us the craziest thing. It says, From the time Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. (laughs) The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. That is ridiculous. Joseph had so much God-centeredness that not only did he attract favour, but he attracted it for those around him. Joseph forgave his brothers because he was a God-centered guy. He knew that it was God's job to vindicate and not his. And he trusted that God had a dream and a destiny for him and he was not going to mess with it. But more importantly, Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he knew that forgiving them spoke more of where he was at with God than anything else. You know, I told you about my girlfriend earlier. I recall that um, she came to me once and, and she said that she'd received this nasty letter from her husband's lawyers asking for half of their money, as I'd mentioned earlier. But it was a very unkind, entitled letter. And she said this thing that I will never, ever forget. She said, do you know what, Susie? What I realise is this. It is no longer about me and him, my husband. It's about me and God. And she said, and God is saying to me, this is between us now. Do trust me. Wow. Wow. What if the next time we struggle to forgive someone, we would take that person out of the picture and say, this is not about them and me. This is about me and God. Do I trust him to heal me, to strengthen me? Do I trust him to vindicate me? We also learn from Joseph that forgiveness is decision-centred. Let me unpack this. Decision is not emotion-centred. You see, going back to the story from Genesis 42 and verse 23, but they, his brothers, did not know that Joseph understood them for he spoke to them through an interpreter and he turned himself away from them and wept. When he regained his composure, he returned to them again and talked with them. What? They didn't know who he was because he was sort of in disguise and who would have expected But he knew who they were. And we see here that Joseph was really emotional. He wept. This was not a tearing up and pretending to get dust out of his eyes. This was not pretending like he had watery eyes because he felt a sneeze coming on. No, these were real tears, real emotions. So much so that Joseph needed to step away and compose himself. Who knows what he was thinking in the moment? 
Were the memories and the hurt flooding back? I don't know. Was the disbelief and the recollection of all his brothers ganging up on him as that 17-year-old being relived? I don't know. I don't know. None of us know. But what we do know is that Joseph did not let his emotions get in the way of his decision to forgive. You see, forgiveness is a, is a decision. It's not based on our emotions. As soon as we get our emotions involved in it and begin negotiating with them and where we really feel it and where we really le- relive the pain, we can find many convincing reasons why someone doesn't deserve our forgiveness or, you know, why our hurt is too grand or why it's just best to just let this go. But forgiveness is not a negotiated thing. Forgiveness is a decision. We don't forgive because we always feel like it. You know, I've heard people say before that forgiveness doesn't count if you don't feel like it because then it's just fake. You know, that's actually not true. Forgiveness is a decision based on a commitment to live like Jesus. In fact, it's a decision that needs to sometimes be recommitted regularly, sometimes maybe even daily or hourly in the initial phases of it. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the feelings go away or that the pain disappears immediately or that we develop amnesia and have no recollection of what happened. That's not what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness is an act of obedience. It's a surrender to God that says, not me, but you, God. The scripture is full of verses on forgiveness and we could go through heaps and heaps of them. But I just want to point out Colossians 3.13 that tells us, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then in Matthew 18, 21 and 22, the famous verse, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And then Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. (laughs) What are you talking about? Forgiveness is a decision despite how we feel. And as we choose to forgive, the Holy Spirit comes in and he anoints that decision. And slowly over time, we feel the grip of unforgiveness falling off of us. It's a supernatural peace and enablement that comes from the Spirit of God when we get the ball rolling and when we say, Father, I forgive and you see and you know all things and I trust you. But thirdly, forgiveness is boundary-centred and Joseph demonstrated this in Genesis 49, 19. We see that Joseph didn't really trust his brothers and accuse them of being spies. He put them into prison for three days. And then on the third day, he said this to them. He said, do this and you'll live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go back and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. Basically, 
this sort of, you know, shows us that we've got this situation here where Joseph is actually forgiving his brothers. But this time, he's getting some boundaries in place. He was ensuring some safety nets were in place. He was being as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. (laughs) We also read later on in Genesis 50 and verse 20 that Joseph says to his brothers, you, you guys intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done And I want to point out this reality check. You see, Joseph forgave them, but he was no pushover. He was no bimbo. He acknowledged the reality of the situation. He referred to what they had done as malicious and harmful. He says, you intended to harm me. He didn't just forgive them without understanding the extent of what had happened or what their motives were. That's not awful or evil or judgmental. When we understand what it is that we're actually forgiving someone for, we're then able to also set appropriate boundaries. BC, I just want to highlight something while we're on this point. This is important for some of you watching or listening. You see, whilst forgiveness is unconditional, restoration, on the other hand, is conditional. What do I mean by that? You see, we're told to forgive That's a blanket command for all of us who want to be like Jesus. But when it comes to restoration, to restoring that friendship or relationship, we've got to step in with boundaries and stay closely aligned to the voice of God. What's he saying about how we ought to engage differently or if we ought to engage at all? I wonder what your heart, your head space and your life would look like if you chose to forgive and lay to rest the things that others have committed against you today? What would happen if you chose to hand them over to God, to trust him to vindicate you and trust him for the wisdom on how to move forward and to trust him for the empowerment and the peace of his Holy Spirit on you? You know, we've just unpacked this story of Joseph and his beautiful example of forgiveness. But Jesus' example was even greater and grander. You see, the scripture tells us in Micah 7, 19, that God will again have compassion on us. He will tread on our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depth of the sea. That's a long way down, you know. (laughs) In fact, you actually know how far down the deepest point of the sea is. It's almost 36,000 feet below sea level, we're told. That's almost 11 kilometres. It's a long way down. So when the Bible says that God forgives us and casts our sins into the bottom of the ocean, it's almost a a hyperbole to say, cast that offence off to the deepest possible destination where no human can ever go or dig it up and resurface it. Wow. All for us. And so today, friends, I want to pray. May you know the power of the Spirit in your life and the peace that comes from forgiveness and the joy that comes from being like Jesus. May the Holy Spirit come in and mobilise you and empower you 
and, and brush over your emotions and your feelings and your decisions as you step out and make decisive decisions to be like Jesus and forgive. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen.